It's expected to be one of the closest House races in the nation, as Democrat Kendra Horn looks to defend her seat against Republican State Senator Stephanie Bice. I'm Ben Felder with The Frontier, and as we approach the election for Oklahoma's 5th Congressional District, which includes much of the Oklahoma City Metro, I've recently published stories on this race, the candidates, and what's at stake. You can find those stories at readfrontier.org. Just click on the Government tab at the top of the homepage. In working on some of those stories, I recently visited with both Horn and Bice for interviews at the Frontier's Oklahoma City office. For the next two episodes of the Listen Frontier podcast, I want to let you hear those interviews in their entirety. We weren't in the studio we normally use for podcasts, so the sound quality is not quite as good. Our office is just off a busy street, so you may hear a siren or other noises from the road, but for the most part, the sound is pretty clear. In addition to the Frontier stories, you can also learn more about these candidates by watching their debates, the first of which was recently hosted by OETA and Oklahoma Watch, and can be found online. I tried to tailor my questions to each candidate, and some of the questions address the news of the day. The first part is my interview with Stephanie Bice, which was conducted on October 5th. My interview with Representative Horn will be published in a separate episode, but will be in the Listen Frontier podcast feed by the time you're hearing this. Here is my interview with Senator Bice. So I want to, I want to first ask you about education because it's something that gets brought up a lot about from your from your opponents. Um, and you know, so you voted in favor of the teacher pay raise in, in eighteen. Two of them. Two of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and yet you've been criticized for not being a supporter of public education. So I want to give you a chance to kind of unpack that by asking one: Was there something that maybe could have been done sooner? Um, and then how would you characterize like your support of public education as a state senator? So, you know, the conversation around investment in education had been going on, I think, well before I was elected in 2014, 2015 being my first session. And if you take a step back and think about what had happened at the end of 2014, that was when the significant downturn in oil and gas happened. And so my first year, we had to deal with a $600 million budget shortfall. And we did everything we could to keep education whole, mm-hmm. making some targeted cuts, but also backfilling some of the budget with the rainy day fund. The second year, which would have been the 2016 uh, legislative session, we were looking at a $1.2 billion, no, I'm sorry, $900 million budget shortfall that second year. All right, now I'm backwards. It was $1.2 billion. And so, um, you know, again, we had to make targeted cuts and we did everything we could to keep education whole. And the third year was a $900 million budget shortfall. And at that point, I think we had, we had tried to, you know, backfill and put supplementals in place. We had made budget across the board budget cuts because we had to. Um, but also what's interesting is that a lot of people are saying, well, she's not for, you know, edu- common education. If you went back and looked at the 2017 special session budget, which if you remember, we were trying to put together a step up plan or an A plus package or some sort of package revenue package to be able to fund the teacher pay raise. We couldn't, there was nothing that was, was able to pass both chambers. And so there was a budget put forth that in November of 17 that cut the budget across the board, including education for four and a half percent, I believe. And I voted no because I felt like that we needed to make sure that we were, if we were going to make cuts, that they were targeted, not an across the board mm-hmm. scenario. 
So those cuts to education that led you to or one of the reasons why you voted. One of them, absolutely. That would have been a place that you would have wanted to 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 keep them whole, absolutely. And so the the narrative that I'm not supporting education is sort of confusing to me because not only did I try to protect them from cuts the the three years prior to the investment in education in eighteen, but I voted against a budget that would have been a significant uh, impact to them. I've voted for supplemental funding when we had those dollars to be able to give them. And then not only supporting the teacher pay raise in 2018, but also the additional $1,200 teacher pay raise that Governor Stitt championed in 2019. Yeah. So in a matter of really five years in the, in the state Senate, uh, I supported a $7,200 teacher pay raise for educators across Oklahoma. Yeah, and I know that you're hoping that this isn't a decision you have to make, but if, if you were in the legislature next year, uh, there's likely going to have to be budget cuts again. Would you prefer to see one, you know, targeted cuts like you were hoping to see that one year? And if so, like, would you like, would you keep, would you vote to keep education whole? Or kind of how would you try to structure that? Absolutely, and uh, we've made a commitment as a legislative body to make sure that we're uh, investing in education. So I most certainly would want to do my part to keep education whole. And the nice thing is, you know, Governor Stitt really focused on making sure that we had a robust savings account. As you know, the rainy day fund is a constitutionally created entity and it's capped at 15%. And so that poses some problems when you have several years in a row of significant revenue shortfalls. He, we passed the revenues, revenue stabilization fund um, a couple of years ago and this last session we put money in there. So we have significantly more revenue that uh, savings account dollars that we could tap into to, to make sure that agencies like education are kept whole should we face another revenue shortfall year. Yeah, and, and funding and, and teacher salaries have obviously gotten most of the attention when it comes to education policy in recent years. But beyond, beyond the, the dollars and cents, I mean, kind of how would you characterize your your platform on education during your time in the Senate? Well, you know, I've done a lot of things that have supported education. For example, I had a constituent who's a professor at UCO reach out to me, and he um, shared with me that there is duplicative testing for teachers, depending on their path, uh, what they're specializing in. They're having to say, take the same test twice, which made, made no sense, and they were statutory requirements. And so I championed changing that, got that passed. So it makes it uh, more streamlined for teachers to get their certification in certain areas. I was the author of a bill that gave the State Department of Education some funding to be able to recruit new teachers uh, that had never been done before. They don't. They didn't want to take the appropriated dollars that they're getting to do that. They wanted to try to find some other way to be able to use some dollars for marketing purposes to attract uh, to attract teachers. That was the um, license plate bill that was passed a couple of years ago. So I feel like I'm really doing things that will have a long-term impact on public education in Oklahoma. So let's talk about what education policy in, in Congress, if you were elected. So, you know, so Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, I mean, she's attempted to get Congress to fund tax credit programs to use for private school tuition, especially for low-income students. My question to you is, like, so if there were no additional funding to put into the federal uh, funding formula, um, would you still would you support that that effort to provide uh, tuition assistance for for private school tuition for low income students? We've actually been doing that in the, on the state level with the Opportunity Scholarship Fund. It's a very it's, it's almost an identical type of program. 
uh, and it's been pretty effective. So would you like to see that duplicated at the federal? I mean, I know most of the money comes from the states, but I mean, there is an effort at the federal level, especially with the education secretary, to find some ways to provide additional support. I don't know what the funding mechanism for that is, so I'm not sure. On the state level, those are private dollars that are donated to um, the Opportunity Scholarship Fund to provide those. There's a, there's a match. Uh, so I think in some ways it's a public-private partnership, uh, the way that's being done. But I don't, I don't know because I don't know what the federal um, funding mechanism is for that. Yeah. So you talk about the program that's in place here at the state level. Uh, are you supportive of expanding that? Um, I think targeted expansion of that has been something that has been talked about. And, you know, it, it can impact things like Positive Tomorrows, which is a school that focuses on homeless children. They have some very unique needs, and those types of opportunities, I think, are some that should be um, supported by Opportunity Scholarship Fund. Low-income families that maybe they are having a tough time uh, being able to, you know, get their kids transferred to another school, but there's a great uh, private school close to them that they'd like to attend. I think that you know, if you're in a D or F school and you want your kid to have a good education, your options are limited. Yeah. An interesting dynamic to COVID right now is the fact that you have. Um, parents, single parents, that are in school districts that are either totally virtual or maybe uh, a blended model right now, and they're really struggling. And some of them are looking at how can I attend a private school or put my kids in private school because many of the private schools are going in person. Yeah, um, that's tough. I mean, that's a really tough thing. And I understand, you know, um, some of the schools and their challenges that they're facing. Certainly, funding being one of those to make sure you're protecting kids and teachers. Uh, but I think that, you know, those are the things that you have to really think about, okay, what's in the best interest of um, the kid? Um, but also, we want to make sure that we're not doing that to the detriment of our public school system. Yeah. Let me ask you about, like, the charter school management, obviously a big topic right now. We saw the state slotted into Epic come out last weekend. I don't know if you've had a chance to read that in no. reports. But one of the recommendations the state auditor made or, or hinted at was that I mean, the state should strongly consider no longer allowing for-profit companies to manage charter schools. It's a relevant issue at the state level, but also at the national level. I mean, Vice President Biden has hinted that that might be a policy that he would like to push forward. Um, can you kind of explain your thoughts on charter school and the management of charter schools? Is it something that private companies should be allowed to manage, or should it stick to you know nonprofit organizations and local organizations? Look, I don't know what's happened with Epic. I don't know the yeah. details of that. But what I will tell you is that my sister-in-law is a teacher in a charter school here in Oklahoma City. Okay. She's a phenomenal teacher. Uh, it's an incredible school. They're doing really good things for kids, uh, and I don't think we should take that away from them. If there are if there are issues with with a particular way that a charter school is being run, we can certainly look at that. Yeah. And if we need to address um, maybe transparency or making sure that they're being held to a certain standard, let's do that. That's important. But trying to pit I think public versus charter, which actually most people don't know that a charter school is a public yeah. school, right? Um, I don't think that's a benefit to anyone. I wanted to move on to healthcare. Um, so you're not a supporter of the Affordable Care Act. Um, if, if you were elected and, and Republicans regained control of the House and the vote was taken to uh, do away with the Affordable Care Act, that, was a, that would be a vote that you would support, correct? Right? As long as we ensured that pre-existing conditions were continued to be um, covered. Okay. Yeah, I, that's a sticking point for me. Okay, are there any other sticking points related to the, how the Affordable Care Act is structured now that would be non-negotiable for you, that you would want to see kept? Um, you know, there may be, but I think that's the one that, that really jumps out at me. I have um, a friend, family friend that her daughter was diagnosed with leukemia at the age of five, and she's now a healthy, almost 18-year-old. 
you know, under the previously before ACA, she would have had a very tough time getting uh, insurance coverage, even though she's been, you know, cancer free for over a decade. So I think that those are the sorts of things that we should be looking at. Um, but I don't, you know, ACA was passed and really sold to the American public as an Affordable Care Act. And what's happened is for the middle class, it's gone, the you know, p- price of healthcare has actually skyrocketed. And so there's got to be a reasonable, thoughtful approach to that. And I'd like to see that happen sooner rather than later. Yeah, what would you like to replace it with? You know, there's some things I've been looking into. You've seen across the country some talk about um, a health savings account instead of offering coverage specifically to individuals under this very sort of strict set of guidelines, allowing them a set amount every year through a health savings account that's provided where they get to choose their doctor. They get to choose you know, what um, services that they're um, uh, receiving. There are things like that. that that does a couple things. It allows for flexibility for the patient. It allows for them to decide you know, what they need, what their needs are. Uh, I think it, it will provide competition because right now, you may know on the on the exchange, there's only two companies in Oklahoma that have been providing uh, insurance coverage, which isn't really competition. At one point, there was a threat of only being one yeah. uh, because of the cost. So I think there are ways that we can address it um, to be able to make it um, work for all Oklahomans. Yeah, okay. But just to reiterate, so I mean, if, if there was a, a, a vote to do away with the ACA, including the pre-existing condition mandate, that would not be a vote that you would support? No, okay. no. You know, one thing I think that's been interesting about this year, many things, obviously, is, you know, it's just a reminder of, you know, for most Americans, their health insurance is tied to their, you know, where they work. And, you know, you lose a job, you lose your health insurance. Is that still, is that a good system? I think it is, but there's also things like COBRA, which, mm-hmm. you know, is sort of a backstop um, for, for individuals. And if, you're, if you've lost your job, then you likely would, would qualify for ACA, mm-hmm. um, you know, given the circumstances. And so that would be at least a, a, a temporary stopgap until you could um, gain employment again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that sort of is the best solution for now. Certainly in the future, if there's something else that we see um, that comes about, maybe that's something that can be looked at. But for, you know, for the time being, yeah. it makes sense. So moving on here, I wanted to ask you a little about kind of energy, something you've talked a lot about in the energy sector. So this is one of the areas you've kind of been critical of Horn in is, um, you know, her support of Lacey's lack of support for the energy sector. Um, she's, she has not supported a ban on fracking, which some of her colleagues have, have proposed in her caucus. And, you know, there's, there's no companies in Oklahoma that drill for oil and gas offshore. So, I mean, giving those kind of, those are things that are brought up quite a bit, but mm-hmm. those either don't seem to be relevant or she doesn't support it. So going beyond those two issues, you know, why do you think you would be, a better representative for CD5 when it comes to the, the important energy sector here? Look, even her um, Democrat predecessor in Congress, um, Dan Boren, voted in favor of those types of initiatives, right? In o- Oklahoma, well, the U.S. has actually fought for energy independence for decades, and we're really, you know, there at this point, we're able to, um, our exports are more, and our imports are. And I think that the, the problem I have is that she has voted in opposition to all of these initiatives receiving a 0% rating from the American Energy Alliance. and she, But she says that she's for oil and gas. Well, there's no guarantee of that. I mean, you voted lockstep with Democrats on every oil and gas initiative that's been put forward. So you may be able to say that you wouldn't, you know, support a ban on fracking, but, you know, that may not, that may not be an option for you. If we continue to, to have Democratic representation and Nancy Pelosi puts up a vote for fracking, she may or may not vote no on it, but that doesn't mean it's it's actually going to um, 
it's going to fail on the congressional level, it could still pass. I, I think Oklahomans want somebody that's going to fight for oil and gas. It's 90,000 jobs in the state. That's a big deal. Yeah. Um, and I, I just, I think there's a concern that she's, she's not supporting the industry at all. And, and again, you can say one thing, but your vote says something very different. So what would you, I mean, beyond just uh, protecting the vote of, you know, not wanting to make any kind of vote that would be detrimental to the energy sector, or that the sector would see as detrimental. So what, do you, what would you do as a member of the U.S. House, not to just protect energy, but to promote it in the sector well, here? Well, I think there's, you know, things that we've done on, this, on the state level. For example, you know, we passed uh, a couple of years ago a long lateral bill that would allow for um, expansion of hydraulic fracturing in certain areas. That was um, a bill that would allow for companies to actually, you know, make it more profitable. And certainly when you're talking about $40 a barrel oil, you know, that make, profitability becomes a really big issue. Um, so I want to make sure that we're, we're looking at all of those sorts of dynamics. Um, also, when you're talking about, um, you know, banning f f drilling off of the um, coast or in Alaska, there's been municipalities here that have wanted to ban drilling um, across the state. I'm not sure that's, you know, the best solution. Um, certainly we need to be thoughtful and, and um, considerate of how we do that if we're, if we're drilling close to municipalities, but just banning it outright becomes really a detriment to the state of Oklahoma. So when you say like municipalities, you mean like cities that have proposed like fracking bans. Mm -hmm. So how do you kind of juggle that desire by a local city to want to protect its own citizens on an issue that they see it one way versus uh, you know, not giving them that ability, that it's, local control. It's about compromise, you know, finding reasonable solutions. Some of the municipalities, for example, um, didn't like um, the, the lighting because, you know, you light up mm -hmm. those rigs at night. They had issues with that. They had some issues with noise. So you can find ways to abate those things and really become a partner with the community rather than just putting a complete ban on it. Yeah. Is there, is there a need, is there more that the nation could be doing in terms of embracing renewable fuel sources? I mean, obviously, you know, oil and gas isn't going anywhere for a long time, but at the same time, I mean, everything changes. Um, the country's most successful businesses evolve, but, you know, it seems like with a lot of the oil and gas companies, I mean, they're still sticking to that plan. Is there a need to expand those options and opportunities, or are we, or is it smart to put all our eggs in the oil and gas basket right now? I don't think we have put all our eggs okay. in the oil and gas basket. And if you look, you know, especially when you're talking about renewables, wind, and to some extent mm -hmm. solar, you've seen a huge increase, especially in Oklahoma. Yeah. Governor Fallon, when, when she was in office, was a big proponent of diversifying our energy, including actually hydro, or, uh, hydroelectric uh, up in the Catoosa area, um, making sure that we had diversified. And I think that as technology evolves, you're going to continue to see less and less in the fossil fuel uh, side of things and more in that renewable space, but it's still expensive. Um, it's not actually a great option considering that when you're talking about, for example, electric vehicles, which has been a big push, you actually have to go mined for the minerals to be able to build the batteries to put in those cars to run. Well, that's not environmentally friendly either. So there's got to be really a give and take in finding ways that are still um, conscientious of you know the environment but also uh, not going to raise energy prices and that's something that I think if you look at what's happening in California they've regulated energy price energy so much that the price of electricity is sky high for Californians and I don't think that we want to do that here we need to let technology dictate think about an electric vehicle 10 years ago mm -hmm. the cost of them 
It's come down significantly since then. Yeah. I want to ask you about uh, kind of your perception of, of your opponent. Um, you know, critics, you know, many Republicans have, have painted her as a, as a left-wing extremist. And, you know, I know some of your primary opponents, uh, you know, use the word socialism a lot. I don't want to put that word in your mouth because I don't know which one you use. But she has a self-described herself as a moderate. Uh, she's only one of two Democrats that the U.S. Chamber is endorsed in this race. So how do you see her? I mean, do you feel like she is a moderate in a, in a moderate district, or do you not? Do you think that's a, a false description of her? Well, it's hard to say that she's a moderate when she's voting um, with Nancy Pelosi and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez so many times. I mean, it's 87% or more. Uh, so it, it's hard to see a moderate spin um, when you're when you're really supporting almost every, every Democrat in, initiative. Um, you know, I, I, I think that's really a question for voters as to whether or not they see her as moderate. I think that most of them think that she's left-leaning but trying to paint herself as a moderate, but her voting record says differently. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, I know in the primary, the president, support of the president was a big theme, um, especially between you and these. And correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think I've seen any of your commercials since then talk about the president. Um, you know, why is that? Why has there been a shift from away from, you know, talk so much about the president? You know, how, why, have you, why have we seen that shift from him? Well, the president's not running. I mean, he's not running for CD5. I yeah. am. So yeah. I think that's yeah. the biggest reason is I want to talk about what I'm going to do for the district, why, um, what my values are, what I can accomplish and what I have accomplished um, as a state senator. Yeah. But he wasn't running in the Republican primary either. I mean, say, so, he wasn't running in the Republican primary either, but that was such a big a big part of it. I don't know that I would say I made it a big part of my campaign. I certainly talked about you know some of the policies he was put forward that I think were the right policies, pushing back on China, for example. I think that was the right decision. Yeah. Uh, and I talked a lot about that through the primary and the runoff election. Yeah. Um, but I want to talk about you know really my record and what I plan to do uh, as the next member of Congress. Yeah. He's obviously a polarizing figure. I mean, if Warren's going to win, she's going to have to get Trump supporters. If you're going to win, you're probably going to need um, some people who are going to vote for Biden. So how, what are your conversations like with some of those voters who may be, whether they're Republican or Democrat, are not supportive of the president? No, you are. I mean, that's still, that's still the case, I assume. So, uh, you know, how do you appeal to those voters who, who don't agree with the direction that the country's going, at least under the president's leadership? I think you have to talk about policy here. We're not talking about people. You know, when you're talking about uh, where this country is headed, it's really the policies that we're talking about that we're focused on. It's things like making sure that the new Green Deal doesn't happen because that would decimate Oklahoma's economy with a ban on fracking. Uh, when we're talking about, um, you know, health care, the Democrats talk about, well, we may want to do a Medicare for all type of plan. Well, that would uh, take insurance, private insurance away from 180 million Americans. That's what I try to focus on when I'm having those conversations with people is here, not only here are the things that uh, we're talking about on the federal level, but also look at what I've done on the state level. You know, I've championed some really big initiatives, everything from certainly alcohol modernization to criminal justice reform, which is a really big deal and a bipartisan type of issue. I think Oklahomans are tired of seeing people incarcerated for nonviolent low-level crimes. And as you know, we incarcerate or have incarcerated more people per capita than any country in the world. Uh, people want to see someone who will actually get things done and I feel like I've gotten those things done uh, and I've and I've proven you know that that I can and I think that's what sells yeah I want to circle back to criminal justice in a second oh, okay <laughs> well, sticking with real quick with the, the president I want to ask you about uh, the response to COVID-19 um, I, I believe if I'm remembering right there was the 
the debate that was hosted by non-doc, you and, and Nice were asked, do you feel like the president has done a good job in his response to COVID-19? Uh, I don't remember what your exact language was, but I think you said that you supported how he had responded. Um, you know, since then, we've, we've learned that you know, back, back in the early days of the pandemic, he had told Bob Woodward that he was intentionally downplaying this. You know, with that new information and the last couple months since that debate, do you still believe that the president has done a good job responding to the pandemic? Look, it's easy to armchair quarterback. Um, we've never seen a global pandemic like this since you know, yeah. 1912, right? So it's really easy for people to sort of criticize every move that's been made by the president. He, when we realized that you know, there was this pandemic coming, he immediately stopped travel from China, which he was immediately criticized for. He went to work with Congress to try to put together some sort of aid package because if we're starting to shut down cities, including New York City and, and others, uh, that's a huge impact on the economy. So he worked with Congress to put together the um, federal stimulus package, the um, PPP dollars, which really helped you know keep the economy afloat. Uh, I think that he's also looked at Operation Warp Speed and trying to find a vaccine because the reality is the best thing for this country is to have a vaccine for COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So, you know, would I have made every single decision the same way? No. Uh, but as I've, I think I've joked with you before, I've been married for almost 25 years and my husband and I don't agree on everything. And so uh, it's easy to be critical, but I think that he's doing the best he can with the information that he has presented to him. Yeah. Um, so going back to criminal justice that you, you'd brought up, um, you know, you, you talk about Oklahoma's uh, you know, ranking in, in the world when it comes to incarceration. In a lot of ways, criminal justice reform is kind of a state issue. I mean, the majority mm -hmm. of of inmates are at, are at the state level. There, I mean, there is a, at the federal level as well. So what do you feel like you can do, I mean, kind of representing Oklahoma where this has been such an important issue, what, what do you feel like you could do at the federal level in terms of uh, continuing to address criminal justice reform? You know, the president's taken on this, t this issue as well, and I think that we have to be <clears throat> making sure that we're doing things that will help individuals that either are incarcerated or have the potential to be incarcerated. And what I mean by that is, you know, 15 years ago, we moved away from mental health facilities because there was a lot of issues with those. But now we're finding out that our prisons and jails are full of people with mental health issues. We should be investing more in mental health. And we've seen some really great things happen on the state level from that perspective. I also think we're not doing enough to help um, reintegrate people into society after they have served their time. We essentially... Uh, give them, you know, 50 bucks, their belongings, and tell them good luck. You know, if you think about it from just a very basic perspective, this individual now has a felony conviction of some sort. Let's say it's a drug crime. Uh, they likely don't have a driver's license. They're going to have a difficult time getting a job. And then because of that, they're going to have a difficult time with housing. Those are some really easy things that you can trying to work through to figure out how can we make this process easier for them and making sure that they have resources, whether that's on the community level or the state level, to, to be able to reintegrate into society because what we want is for people to be productive members of society. Yeah. Um, so much attention right now is on the voting system, the voting process. People are already voting, uh, you know, even before, weeks before the election day. Um, how confident are you in America's voting system? And then more importantly, how confident are you right now in Oklahoma's voting system? Well, certainly I think there's some challenges with the voting system in certain states. You know, one of the things that I think is great about Oklahoma is we are not a universal mail-in ballot state. And that's what you're hearing a lot of talk about. 
Um, and I and I think that there's some validity to that. I mean, when you're mailing out ballots to every single voter, um, there's likely to be some challenges with that. Oklahoma has one of, if not the most secure election system in the entire country, and I think it would be wise for other states to emulate us. We um, have a absentee ballot program where you have to request a ballot, and then when you send it back in, you either have to have a notary notary um, seal on there, or because of COVID-19, we've made provisions to include a copy of a driver's license or a voter ID card. And when you're voting in person, you know, you show an ID as well. I think all of these things lend themselves to having a very secure, safe, and accurate election uh, system. Someone asked me a while back, do you think you'll know the um, election results the night of? And it was an interesting question because I've gone through a couple of elections myself, right? And I responded with, well, usually I know by 9 o'clock, you know, and the polls close at 7. Um, they were shocked by that. You know, states like Georgia, um, who allow absentee ballots, and I think they allow you to uh, collect them two weeks after the the election date. Uh, that makes it almost impossible to be able to decide a, a, a candidate the night of. So I'm very proud of the election system. You know, when you're getting, going to the polls on election day, you actually have a paper ballot. So there's a backup system. The system is not networked, which makes it I would say virtually unhackable. Mm-hmm. We've heard uh, some stories from Homeland Security that uh, people did try to hack systems across the country. They couldn't hack ours. So shout out to the election board and Paul Zirax and his team for putting together what I would say is probably the best election process in the country. Yeah. So finally, uh, I mean, you're used to asking, answering questions uh, almost every day probably from voters and members of media like myself, and you're probably asked a lot of the same questions. So I want to ask like, is there, is there a question you wish you were asked more of or, or an issue you feel like you don't get a chance to speak to as much um, that people aren't focused on? Or if you could pick the question, I like this. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> um, if I could pick a question. It's okay if not. I just want to give you a chance to, to sit about what you're Is there something I didn't ask you that you I didn't give myself a pay raise. Yeah, okay, yeah. No, <laughs> you've been, you've been uh, accused of uh, by your critics. And so that, yeah. and that is a, you approved a budget, but you did not approve that funded that, but that was not a decision on whether or not to give yourself a pay raise. Yeah, I mean, I think it's amazing when you have a Democrat state house member post on social media uh, a message defending the fact that I didn't give myself a teacher pay raise. You may not have seen it, but yeah, I mean, I it was so shocking to me and. What was frustrating was, I think it was the primary, this outside group was saying, vote yourself a pay raise, but cut education, that sort of thing. Um, You know, covering the Capitol for a while, that that's not possible, that it's a constitutionally created board. Um, They determine pay. They had determined to cut our pay by $3,000 three years prior. Um, But it was, you know, the message was twisted that because I funded a budget, which I'm you know, required to do as a member of the legislature is to fund state agencies. That was part of the budget. Mm-hmm. Even if I would have zeroed it out, it's a constitutional provision. I couldn't have not given myself that. And what's even, I think, more ironic is, um, should I be blessed enough to win this congressional race? I'll never see that pay raise because it doesn't take effect until the 21st of November.
That's going to do it for this episode of Listen Frontier. You can find my interview with Representative Kendra Horn in the next episode of the podcast, which has already been published. You can get each episode of the Listen Frontier podcast by subscribing to the Listen Frontier podcast feed in your favorite podcast app. For The Frontier, I'm Ben Felder. Thanks for listening. <laughs>